Hey everybody, it's Lon Seib and it's time once again for your weekly wrap up and this week I thought we would talk about the right to repair. A lot of you have written in lately asking me to talk about it because Lewis Rossman, a popular YouTuber who many of you follow, is starting a ballot initiative in Massachusetts to try and get that state to require manufacturers to make parts available to individuals and repair shops. Let's get to it. Now, the right to repair movement has been very busy since we last talked about it here on the channel in 2018. A number of state legislatures have been taking up bills to consider making parts available to consumers and to independent repair shops, but there hasn't yet been a legislative victory. Uh, Lewis has been traveling the country trying to get uh, these bills passed, but unfortunately the industry is very good at keeping the status quo intact, and their lobbyists have really prevented any kind of movement from happening, even in a small way, anywhere in the country. So as it stands now, if you're a Lewis Rossman or Alon Seibin, I can't get parts or schematics from Apple unless I go through a formal authorization process that has a lot of strings attached, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Now, Lewis runs a repair shop in New York City. It's called the Rossman Repair Group. I'm actually a customer of his because my wife has an out-of-warranty MacBook Pro from 2016, and those devices are notoriously bad from a reliability standpoint. So we had a motherboard issue with it. I had Lewis take a look at it, uh, saved me a couple of hundred bucks at least versus going to the Apple store. He was able to repair the motherboard versus the replacement uh, that Apple would have done to it. And then a few months later, I had another issue with that same MacBook. This is the FlexGate issue where the uh, display gets detached from the motherboard. And I didn't know that was the problem, but when Lewis's team took a look at it, they said, oh, it looks like a FlexGate problem. And instead of charging me, he actually said, hey, take it back and bring it to Apple because it's under a recall, which I had not been aware of. So he's a good guy, really, I think, uh, looks out for his customers and is very passionate about customer service on his YouTube channel, which is very important. And I will say that I've been to the Apple store many, many times throughout my life, and most of the time it feels like I'm going to the DMV. It's not a very good experience, but every experience I've had with Lewis has been a good one, and the best part is I don't have to leave the house either. I can just pack it up, send it to him, and get a prognosis in a couple of days. Now, for me as a consumer, I'd much prefer to take my out-of-warranty stuff to Lewis versus Apple because Lewis wants to try to repair stuff as opposed to getting me to buy something new. His business model is repairs. Uh, Apple's business model is replacement. Even if you go in trying to get something repaired, they don't often try to fix the motherboard. They want to sell you a whole new one. Now, what Lewis is looking to do here is pass a ballot initiative, and he's got a big goal here to raise about $6 million to get this off the ground. And that's a lot of money, but you need a lot of money for ballot initiatives. He's doing this right now through GoFundMe. And I think he's going about it the right way because he's formed a 501c4 nonprofit, which is what you should be doing when you're taking on big initiatives like this. I think once he transitions into trying to get people to vote for something, uh, Massachusetts law might require him to do something a little different. But for now, I think the C4 is the right route to take, and that also uh, shields him from a little bit of tax liability from the amount of money that he might raise for this. Now, why is he looking at Massachusetts for a ballot initiative? Because there's a lot of other states in the United States to choose from that offer direct ballot access. Why Massachusetts here in New England? Well, the reason is that Massachusetts has already passed a right to repair law on vehicles 
uh, through a ballot initiative. Uh, what it requires is automakers to open up how they record data so that anyone can get an analysis of what's wrong with a car. And this passed overwhelmingly in Massachusetts when it got on the ballot. It couldn't get through the legislature because of all the lobbying. But as you can see here, it was a substantial uh, number of yes votes to no votes, clearly a bipartisan vote here uh, when that got on the ballot. And that's why I think he's focusing there, because there is a record of something actually passing, and it looks like the public is very interested in it. And us New Englanders are, pl are proud independent Yankees, and we like to do things ourselves. And when bills like this allow us to have a little bit more power over the things that we own, they tend to be very popular here. And although this is one vote in one state, this might have broader implications because an automaker is not going to have their car work differently in Massachusetts than it would in the other 49 states in the union. So you may see just the car working the same everywhere. And in many ways, you can look at what happened in Europe with the GDPR and how a lot of US-based sites changed their privacy policies to comply with that law, which impacted more than just people living in Europe. Now, you might be asking, why does Lewis want to raise $6 million just to get this initiative started? Well, the reason is, is that this stuff costs a lot of money, especially when you get that initiative on the ballot where you have to start convincing voters to support it. And if you look at what it costs for the 2020 vehicle initiative, more than $50 million was raised and spent on that ballot question. And when you look at how much the opposition spent to get that shellacking at the polls, you can really appreciate uh, just how hungry voters were to make their voice heard on this issue. But if the supporters had not raised a comparable amount of money, they probably would have been overwhelmed by the industry's messaging because the industry was putting out a lot of fear-mongering ads trying to convince people to vote against the bill. And I think that money that the supporters raised to convince them otherwise is what put them over the top there. And the ballot initiative process itself, just getting on the ballot, can also be costly because of a very tight time frame that you're under. So the way this works is that you have to get a document signed by 10 registered voters and submitted to the attorney general's office by the first Wednesday in August. And they say generally here, initiative petitions are filed in odd numbered years to appear on the ballot in the next statewide election. So if this were to happen, it needs to happen this August. And you look at this and say, well, how hard could that be? You just need 10 people. Yes, that part's easy. Uh, but after you get that signed and you submit your petition with all of the things that you want to have in your initiative, uh, the attorney general's office will then look at it and make sure that it meets all the constitutional requirements of the state. And they will likely let you know by the first Wednesday in September whether or not you're a go. And they could very much decide to just throw it out and you're basically back to square one. But if they decide it does meet the requirements, then the first Wednesday in September is when you're given the go-ahead to collect your signatures for your petition. And that one requires a lot more than 10 people. You need 80,239 signatures. And remember, you can't start until you get, get the all clear from the AG's office in September. And then you've got 14 days before the first Wednesday in December to get all of those signatures done. So pretty much like Thanksgiving is your cutoff. And the way it works in Massachusetts by how I read this is that if you have somebody uh, signing a document in Worcester, you have to have the town clerk in the city of Worcester validate that all of the Worcester signatures are 
uh, people who are actually registered voters. And that has to repeat itself all throughout the state. So if you're in Boston collecting signatures, if somebody happens to live in a different town uh, and is just commuting into Boston, you got to get that paperwork over to that local town clerk for them to validate the uh, authenticity of that signature. So it takes a long time to get the signatures and to get them validated. And if anyone is uh, signing who's not a Massachusetts voter, uh, then they're taken off the list. So you need a lot more than 80,239 just to be safe, because if you get to uh, that 14 days before the first Wednesday and you're 10 short, you're out of luck. So you can see just how difficult this is to get done and why you need a very good organizational structure to manage all of this. And good organizational structures that involve a lot of face-to-face -face contact are expensive. You need a lot of people on the ground to make this happen. Now, if you're able to get it done, uh, then it actually forces the legislature to look at it in their following legislative sessions. So if you get all your signatures, uh, the legislature can pass the measure outright, they could propose a substitute, or they could take no action. And if they don't pass something, then you have to go out and collect more signatures. You have to get another 13,374, again, within a very short timeline because you're uh, going to have to start the first Wednesday in May and be done 14 days before the first Wednesday in July. So basically, you've got a month to collect 13,000 signatures. Uh, after they go through that same verification process that your 80,239 did, uh, that will finally get you on the ballot, and then you got to sell it to voters for the fall election. So you can just see why you need a lot of money to get something like this done. But Lon, you say, is this all necessary? Isn't Apple starting to allow independent shops to buy official parts and get certified to repair out-of-warranty products? And the answer to that is yes. Back in August of 2019, Apple started a program to do just that. You do have to meet certain requirements. You have to demonstrate that you have some aptitude in repairing products, things that I would see to be pretty reasonable. Uh, but there's always the fine print, and that fine print came out uh, back in February of 2020 because apparently the contract that these independent shops have to sign is incredibly invasive as Vice's motherboard uh, reports here in the article you see linked on screen. And I would suggest you take a look at this because this is just one little snippet of a lot of bad stuff that those contracts require. Uh, so one of the things that happens here is that if you are one of these independent repair shops that wants to get official Apple parts, you agree to some crazy stuff like allowing Apple to audit your facility anytime, including normal business hours, and then Apple may continue conducting audits, which can involve interviewing the repair shop's employees for five years following the termination of the contract. Who would agree to that? Uh, they also require things like the store turning over customer records to Apple so that they can make sure that you're not selling counterfeit parts in the course of doing your repairs. It is incredibly restrictive. And again, this is just one snippet. Uh, take a look at the whole article. Uh, they liken it to doing business with Darth Vader and saying, pray that I don't change the deal any further. Now, the U.S. Congress, of course, is investigating Apple and the other big tech companies on antitrust grounds. And they've been asking a lot of questions of these companies. And you can see Apple's response to a bunch of those questions linked here on screen. And one of the issues congressional investigators are looking into is this very repair issue. And they asked Apple outright, uh, whether or not their restriction of making these spare parts and repair manuals available 
is a monopolistic practice. Now, of course, Apple is not going to say that their practices are monopolistic. They're arguing, which is what the industry has largely been saying as well, is that it's a matter of safety, that if you put these parts in the hands of somebody who doesn't know how to properly repair a phone or hasn't been validated to do so, bad things could happen. Maybe the phone will catch on fire, for example. But you could also make the argument that because these parts are restricted, it forces small business owners to buy unofficial parts that might be more dangerous. You really uh, can look at this in a number of different ways. I do think there's some truth to the argument here that we have to be careful about uh, who we certify to repair these kinds of electronics that do have high density batteries in them. But at the same time, I don't think this outright restriction here is helping the issue at all. Additionally, they asked Apple since 2009 to identify the total revenue that Apple derived from repair services. And they only answered with this one sentence here saying that the cost of providing repair services has exceeded the revenue generated by the repairs. And this is one of those things that you have to parse out very carefully. And I bet you they spent a lot of time answering this question in the way that they did. And of course, though, it's always about how you ask the question. And if you were to look at what Apple is making on repairs, uh, you'll find that they're making a lot more money than they're letting on here because of the Apple Care program. Now, when I bought my iPhone 12 Pro, I opted for the Apple Care Plus here at $199. I do this every time I buy an iPhone. I've been buying iPhones for well over 10 years now. And yes, I'm a sucker, but I do it because of the cost of getting that Apple screen from the Apple Store if I don't have this coverage. It is a lot more than $199. They charge me $279 to replace the screen. Now, under Apple Care, I have two replacement incidents. Uh, it is covered under the policy here, but I have to pay $29 each time, but I can only get my screen replaced twice. But again, it costs less than opting for this. However, it's an insurance policy, and I can tell you over the course of 10 years, not every phone I've owned has had to have its screen replaced. So they've made a lot of money off of me by prepaying for repair services that I did not end up needing. And I'm doing that because they are the only source of screen replacement and they charge a fortune. And of course, those charges are much more than the Apple Care charges are. And you take a gamble and that's what I've been doing. And unfortunately, in this case, the house always wins and Apple's making a ton of money off their repairs no matter what they tell Congress. Here's the lower priced phone in Apple's uh, repertoire. This is the iPhone SE, their entry-level phone. Uh, here they get you for $79 for that Apple Care coverage, uh, plus a $29 deductible when you need to get that screen replaced. However, if you were to go in without that coverage, you'll spend $129, almost a third of the price of the phone, to swap out that display. So in this example, you can see just how much money Apple is making upfront on repairs, even from people that don't even need repairs, because they control the parts and how much they cost and who has access to them. So you can't get a better deal if you try. And that's exactly the root of the argument here for the right to repair movement. Now, I did get some viewer feedback from all of you, and I'm sure we'll have some more discussions on this in the comments section. Uh, now, what I did on Sunday is I put up a right to repair question on my community tab. By the way, these polls are a great way to uh, circumvent some of the algorithmic restrictions of YouTube. For some reason, YouTube loves putting these polls in front of people, probably because they engage so much. So if you put a poll in a video link, you might get more traffic from that than the video going up on its own. Just a little pro tip there. 
Uh, but in a whopping 97% uh, of you, as expected, uh, agree with some kind of right to repair. 20% uh, though uh, feel that there should be some consumer protections, which I'll elaborate on in a minute. Uh, but I wanted to share some contrary opinions first here. KLY Plays here is concerned that this would uh, kind of violate the principles of the free market by forcing companies to do something. Uh, they feel that that might be dangerous, although they have no problem breaking those companies up. They just don't want to enforce certain business practices on them. Uh, 33 here had a similar point, but they also elaborated in that they feel that the right to repair movement needs to be more specific about what they're asking for. And I have a feeling that might have been what is derailing some of these bills trying to get through various legislatures because uh, once you start getting into the weeds and the unintended consequences, uh, that's when legislators get a bit nervous and put it aside to the next year. So I do agree that there should be more specifics about exactly how this would work in each industry. And that, of course, takes a lot more time. But I do think that is a a pretty good point to make here. And Triple Five was wondering why the right to repair with consumer protection option here in my poll was not polling higher. Uh, as you can see, most people supported a flat out yes versus a yes with some consumer protections in place. Triple uh, Five's concern is that they don't feel like getting scammed by any Joe Schmo in their basement doing shoddy work and ripping people off. And in many repair businesses, uh, states require that the people doing those repairs prove that they're competent and there are some consumer protections in place so that if you are someone who's doing shoddy work, uh, you can lose your ability to do those repairs in the state. Now, in my state of Connecticut, they require licenses for a lot of things like home repair and automotive shops and all that kind of stuff, but they don't require licenses for working on smartphones or computers but you do need to get a license to work on a television or a radio, which I thought was kind of funny, right? You, you would think that a phone, which has a radio in it, would probably qualify as radio work. But in this state, anybody who wants to can open up a phone repair shop, whether they know what they're doing or not. And that, of course, can have some consequences, especially uh, dealing with uh, shoddy, you know, unofficial parts. And this issue was something that Lewis... Uh, raised in a video a couple of years ago because a lot of these shoddy mall repair franchises, for example, are ruining, as he says, the credibility of his industry and I think hurting the argument that they're trying to make that independent shops should have access to these official parts to make repairs because the argument Apple is making is that, hey, it's not safe to do this. Look at all these bad things that can happen with these shoddy mall repair companies. Not everybody's as careful as Lewis is, for example. And I think that's something the right to repair folks may need to think about. The challenge here, though, is that many states don't want to bother with the licensing because it's very expensive to add another thing that they have to license. So there's a lot of things to balance here in this argument. But I think if you uh, really want to get things moving quicker, one of these ballot initiatives is the way to go. Now, he still has a long way to go to get to the $6 million goal. However, the money he's raising, as he states, even if it doesn't get to the point that they can do ballot initiatives, it can help with the effort in hiring lobbyists and keeping people on the ground uh, to keep these legislators engaged. And one thing that I would add to this, in addition to supporting Lewis's work, is that if you want this passed in your state, you need to let your legislators know. Because as powerful as the industry and these lobbyists can be, constituents are still the most important voice in the room, most of the time at least. And when they don't hear from constituents, but they do hear from people out of state, uh, they often don't put the priority on it that I think needs to be there. So I would suggest that 
you find out what's going on in your state related to this issue, if it's important to you, and write to your legislator to say, hey, this is an important issue to me. And when one of those public hearings comes up, you show up and say what's on your mind, because I think all too often people from out of state come in and that's who they're hearing from. So definitely support Lewis and his efforts here and definitely get involved yourself because I think that is equally important. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, this week's wrap-up is being brought to you by all of you. And we have some new Super Chatters to thank, including Mark Bollinger, Redacted, and Grayson Petty. All of them contributed during one of my live streams uh, this week. And we also have some new supporters here on the channel. I want to thank Ronan Malloy, who contributed via our donor box page. Uh, we're getting Richard Kacharski up here again because I uh, mispronounced his name and had him listed incorrectly last week. So we're doing a correction there. Uh, so thank you, Richard, for your support. And I'm sorry about uh, messing up your name there. Uh, he didn't actually email me. I just noticed it when I was going through the slides this week. So uh, we're going to get it right. Uh, Meritus uh, Bagbag is also contributing this week via the YouTube membership program. And we also got a new Floatplane supporter, Linksys120N. If you want to support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or a one-time contribution. And of course, we support Patreon, Floatplane, and the YouTube membership program. We've got a lot of other channels you can follow me on, including my podcast, which has an audio version of this show and other little bonuses that pop up throughout the week. And of course, you can follow me on Amazon at lon.tv slash Amazon shop, where we've got many of our videos and live streams going there as well. You can engage with me on my very infrequent email list at lon.tv slash email. We've got the Facebook group, and we've also got the store where I sell previously used items that we reviewed here on the channel at lower than new prices, but there's only one of everything because it's the actual item I reviewed. You can get an alert every time I update the store at the link you see on screen here via email. And that is going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. Thank you all for your continued support and feedback. And we're going to try to get Lewis on for an interview. I did reach out, so hopefully we'll get him on at some point in the near future. That's going to do it for now. Until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters Chris Allegretta, Tom Albrecht, Mark Bollinger, Sergio Morales, Mark Dell, Jim Callagher, and Stephen Sue. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv support to learn more.
And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.